Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Welcome to Football is Family, a podcast dedicated to the fan and fan experience. My name is Jeremy McFarland, and I want to look at the positive behind what makes football so enjoyable to watch and follow. I want to know why you are a fan of your team, of a player, or an era of football. Whether the pros, college, or high school, I want to hear and share your stories and your love for the game. If you want to be part of this podcast, please message me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore McFarlane, or on Facebook at the Footballist Family Facebook page. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. I'd like to welcome everybody back to Footballist Family Podcast. I have a friend of the program, and, and I'm going to start calling him not only friend, but my co-host. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> I sure would. Uh, my name is Clayton Truder. I'm a professor of U.S. history at Norwich University in Vermont. I'm the author of a forthcoming book called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports, which is available online for pre-order from Barnes & Noble and Amazon and all your well-known book retailers. It's being published by the University of Nebraska Press. I also write about college football and college basketball for SB Nation, and I'm the Vermont State Chairman of the Society for American Baseball Research. What football is, has, and always will be my first love. And, and he, he came on, uh, you've been on twice before, uh, talking about your New York Jets. And uh, <laughs> I introduced him to Pops. And many of you know what Pops is. I, fa- I had a joe namath in my hand and i put it back i should have bought it but it's those little little figures big heads and it was joe namath with his awesome hair uh it just it just looked good and i I figured you would appreciate that but we also talked uh about how sports has helped uh this country through trouble like world war ii covid desert storm um and, and this kind of goes along with what we were talking about uh, with your book. Uh, and I'm going to let you talk a lot more about your book. But before we get into that, the was it 1996 that Atlanta hosted the Summer Olympics, right? Yes, it was. Yep. 96. Uh, and we had an awful event that took place there, a bombing. Um. It's things like this that sports helps to heal. And you think, well, how does that, how does sports help a country heal from something that tragic like that? Uh, it's just, it brings people together. And that kind of leads us into Atlanta. Tell me about this book. Well, Loserville uh, is the story of Atlanta's pursuit of professional sports in the 1960s and about the city's response to the team in the 60s and 70s. It also covers later eras, but it's primarily about the 60s and 70s. Atlanta essentially invents the model that many cities in the South and in the Southwest used when they wanted to get into the big leagues. There had been teams forever in the major professional sports, in the Northeast, in the Midwest, 
the way that cities in the South and the Southwest found a way to get into the big leagues was essentially buying their way in, using public money to, to uh, invest in stadiums, to lure the major leagues to expand to their part of the country, or to relocate teams in that region. Atlanta is the first city that consciously made an effort to become a major league. They had a guy who became mayor named Ivan Allen. And in 1961, when he ran for mayor of Atlanta and eventually won, part of his platform was an idea he called Major League City. That he wanted Atlanta. Atlanta was in the first position in the country and one of the top cities in business. It was in the top, top of the country in all kinds of cultural and social ways. He wanted it to be in the top of sports as well. So he proposed the city building a stadium to lure big league baseball and the national football league as well as building an indoor arena to lure basketball within a decade they ended up having venues of both sports atlanta fulton county stadium which became the home of the falcons as well as the atlanta braves and the omni coliseum which became the home of the atlanta hawks of the nba and the atlanta flames of the national hockey league um Atlanta did this in part because they thought it would be a prestigious thing for their city. They thought it would be a source of civic unity, uh, a way of bringing, I guess, uh, no, more notoriety to the city, making it, having it, uh, giving it a national presence um, in sports that mirrored its, its, its significance in terms of the economics. What people in Atlanta figured out, though, eventually was simply having teams didn't mean that people were going to necessarily embrace them. And in Atlanta and in a number of the other cities in the South and, and Southwest that have gotten teams, whether it was Tampa, whether it was San Diego, uh, whether it was Phoenix, cities that invested in pro sports, things didn't necessarily turn out the way that these city leaders envisioned with their initial aspirations. And in Atlanta, the teams both struggled on the field and at the box office for much of the 60s and 70s. So essentially, this is the story of that and the story of how many other cities had similar experiences both in the ways that they procured teams and also the responses that their teams had, at least initially when they got to town. Okay, so you're you're looking at pretty much two decades. The the Falcons, if I remember the Falcons, Falcons took a while to get going. Is is that what is that what you see as well? Not only for uh winning, but also for drawing a crowd. Well, they drew a crowd. I mean, the NFL has always relied on season ticket sales as their way to drive uh, to drive attendance. The NFL has a, has a relatively short schedule. Season tickets to the NFL are less expensive than a lot of the other leagues as a result of it. So the Falcons sold a lot of season tickets. Their issue more was with people actually showing up because the Falcons struggled on the field for many years. The Falcons came to Atlanta in 1966. They did not make the playoffs until 1978. In 30 of their first 35 years, they finished below average in attendance. Uh, their television numbers drew poorly after the initial years, too, relative to many other franchises. And the Falcons had a particular problem of what was called a no-shows. The Falcons may have sold 40, 45,000 season tickets, but for many of the games, large pockets of the stadium were empty because people didn't bother to show up. Oftentimes, people bought season tickets because they wanted to go see the Green Bay Packers, or they wanted to go see Johnny Unitas or they wanted to go out, go see whatever attraction was happening in town. And after the Falcons struggled on the field very severely in the 60s and much of the 1970s, they had a, a unprecedented problem with no-shows. In the 1974 season, nearly 40% of tickets that were purchased to Falcons games went unused. Uh, that was twice as much as any other team in the league that season. The Falcons had two different games in the 1974 season with more than 40,000 no-shows. 
tickets that were fully paid for, but nobody bothered to actually show up and use tickets. So on a, on their last two home dates that season, they had less than 10,000 people in the stands on occasions. And in many ways, that's kind of a summation of the issue Atlanta faced, that people got tired of the teams losing. And um, also as a result of other factors in the region, uh, didn't end up supporting the teams as city leaders had initially envisioned that they would. So, uh, you know, buying season tickets are one thing, but the money that the NFL teams make, concessions, um, everything else like that, if you have 40,000 people not showing up, sure, you made money off of the tickets, but you're not making the money off of the concessions and the game gear and everything like that. Was that hurting uh, the Falcons at the time? The Falcons it also hurt the Braves because the Braves were the main tenant at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And the way the deal worked, it was a bad deal for the Falcons. 7.5% of every ticket they sold, 7.5% of all the concessions they sold went to the Braves coffers as a result of it. So that cost the Braves hundreds of thousands of dollars every Sunday as a result of this. So the, it, it helps create an antagonistic relationship between the two clubs uh, as well. And oh, there was an antagonism because of the shared stadium as well, because Fal every Falcons player I talked to said they felt like second-class citizens there. The baseball team was there 81 dates a year. It was basically a baseball stadium. They they came out of the Braves dugout when they went out <laughs> into the field. They were using Braves lockers. This was their stadium. In the off season, the field got torn up by like motocross and stuff being done like this in like January and February at the stadium. So the field was always a mess. Uh, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was constructed in a mere 51 weeks. Most NFL stadiums historically have taken two or two and a half years. The haste with which it was built was, was to create a home for the Braves so they could start playing in 1965, which didn't actually happen. That's a whole other story. The haste with which the stadium was constructed led to it aging very quickly. Within a decade, it was one of the worst stadiums in the league. Um, the conditions were atrocious in terms of the way it was constructed. There was flooding all the time. I heard many stories of various rodents in the restroom and rodents in the concessions and all kinds of stuff like this. So it was a real disaster of a stadium in a very short period of time. I, and they, neither team was in there that long, and, it, and no. there's a reason for it. Yeah, I remember going to Fulton County Stadium. I, I saw the Colorado Rockies, I believe, the first year they played in the, in the major leagues. Mm. It was not a great stadium. And it was, it was used uh, dual purpose, like uh, Oakland, Alameda Stadium. Um, was Three Rivers used as a dual purpose? Oh, yeah. In that whole generation, Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, yeah. Riverfront, Three Rivers, uh, RFK Stadium. Yes, was yes. A, a, you know, all these Senators. cities were trying to save money. They wanted to build stadiums to either keep teams or lure teams. But they found, let's save some money by building a stadium for two teams. From a city's economic perspective, I completely understand that. As a playing field, it doesn't really serve either team. The sight lines are frequently bad. The stadiums get worn out quickly. And they're really not suitable exactly for either game. So it, it, in stadiums, whether it was Three Rivers, whether it was Fulton County Stadium, whether it was Veterans Stadium, many different facilities faced those same problems that were built, these multi-purpose stadiums of the 60s and early 70s. Now, when you when you talk about uh, economics, um, you, you think that if they can draw a team in, that there's going to be an economic boom to it. But that's not always the case, is it? Well, I mean, the funny thing about stadiums being built and luring teams in, they tend to not, I mean, most economists 
to look at this. We're not like part of the team and boosting it for them. Basically, what they find is that building a new stadium tends to rearrange economic activity in a metropolitan area. There might be more money spent in a particular place than another place, but it's not really an engine of economic growth. People have a certain amount of discretionary income they're going to spend. If the stadium isn't there, they're going to spend it somewhere else in the metropolitan area, most likely. Stadiums tend not to be the tourist draw, generally speaking, that the boosters of stadiums tend to propose, and they tend not to be an engine of development in the way they're typically described either. Obviously, there's a couple of dozen, a couple of dozen businesses right around a stadium that are going to benefit, whether it's um, people selling, you know, um, team merchandise or restaurants or bars or other similar establishments. But the idea that it's going to be this real boom of economic activity is not really the case. I mean, one of the reasons for this is that pro sports, I think, franchise by franchise are a smaller business than people generally think. Taken as a whole, the NFL is a big business, certainly a huge, huge business, or teams in the other leagues. The NFL or these teams are certainly the biggest businesses of the leagues, but teams in the other leagues, the amount of economic activity they do a year is roughly equivalent to what one super Walmart is going to do, or you know, so when, you know, a big Walmart complex is going to have roughly the same economic impact on a region as, say, a major league baseball team or an nba team or something the nfl is a little bit bigger of an entity than those but it's a big business collectively but individually it's kind of like a lot of medium-sized businesses it's the tax the tax um uh, benefits not necessarily there the the draw it just moves it from one place to another now atlanta I have experienced a lot of atlanta and most of it has been negative with the parking and the traffic it's absolutely mm-hmm. horrible but i have been to fulton county twice i have been to their previous stadium and i cannot think of the name of that stadium talking about the georgia dome or um no the uh the baseball field um well atlanta before- fulton county stadium was there from 66 until did you go to ponce de leon the, where the atlanta crackers played the minor league no the- it was, they, they went after fulton county the one right after that one turner field Turnerfield, yes, yes, I've been to that yeah. one. I haven't been to the new one. I went to the Omni and watched the the Hawks play, which I thought was pretty cool. I mm-hmm. saw them play the Knicks, and I thought that was pretty neat. That's the only NBA game I've been to, which was a pretty neat stadium. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's a real, it was a really cool venue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember the Hawks growing up in the eighties for two people: Spud Webb and Dominic Wilkins. Oh, yeah, they were celebrities. I mean, they were not just basketball players. They were celebrities in the culture broadly in that time period. And yeah. the Hawks, that really put the Hawks in a very good position. I mean, the Hawks had really struggled in the city for much of their history up until then. The kind of Air Force One, as it was called, era of Hawks with, with Rivers and Moses Malone and Tree yeah, Rollins and, yeah. and, and, uh, and Wilkins and, and Spud Webb. I mean, that, and coached by Mike Fratello, who's a character. That was a very interesting team in the late 80s and on the verge of being a competitor in the Eastern Conference. Before that, the Hawks had just genuinely struggled with attendance. I mean, they, I mean, even, despite having a brand new arena with the Omni, despite having Pete Maravich, the, who was at the time the most famous basketball player in the country, playing them for them in the early 70s, they were below the league average in attendance every single year. But people were interested in them in other cities. For two of the four years that Maravich played for the Hawks from 7 to 74, the Hawks were the best drawing road team in the league. The other two years, they were the second best drawing road team in the league because people wanted to see the show that Pete Maravich would put on. 
The only place where they didn't was Atlanta, apparently. Um, the Omni uh, frequently would get outdrawn when the Hawks played there on a Friday night by pro wrestling in an unair conditioned armory that was about two and a half miles down the road. The, what was called the City Auditorium, previously called the City Armory, was built during Grover Cleveland's administration. But they'd have 5,000 people there, standing room only, hooting and hollering, yelling, screaming, ready to fight the bad guys every single Friday night to watch pro wrestling. No, no, no. Clayton, Clayton, you're not Southern. It's wrestling. Wrestling. Oh, sure. Wrestling. Oh, I know wrestling, certainly. Yes. It's wrestling. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm total cultural outsider. But yeah, I mean, pro wrestling was a huge deal. And I mean, in the predecessor to what Ted Turner did with WCW, I mean, it was a huge deal. And people took it incredibly seriously, far more seriously than they did the Hawks. And I think that gets to one of the other themes in the book, which is people in Atlanta had all kinds of sporting passions before the big leagues got there. They loved pro wrestling. They loved auto racing. They loved college football. They didn't stop liking those things just because the teams got to town. They still that, loved that, what they loved. That's what I wanted to bring up. Um, pro pro sports, whether football or, or basketball or baseball, really, it's if you go further south than where I am, it's a uh, with the Titans coming here to Tennessee. It was not a, a pro state. Tennessee mm-hmm. Volunteers. When you go further south, it's you're either a tech tech guy or most most of it down in georgia the bulldogs yeah absolutely and it it, and it probably took and, I, I, and if you in your book i don't know if you mentioned this but uh, it probably took a long time for them to even warm up to the falcons in the sense of being a sport that people followed constantly well absolutely as i say in the book uh, the falcons game for most people was the third most important football game of the weekend for them it was friday night high school there was right. Saturday, either Tech or or Georgia, or there was there were some strong historically black programs in the Clark University, Atlanta University, and yes. Brown had very yes. strong fan bases in the city during that time period as well. So there was a wide range of college teams people followed passionately. The Falcons were third um, in the seventies. Georgia Georgia Tech started to fade a little bit in the seventies. In the nineteen sixties, Georgia Tech was roughly as popular as Georgia. Once Vince Dooley comes in and Georgia becomes the really the main foil to Bear Bryant in the SEC in the 60s and 70s, Georgia football becomes a much bigger deal. They go from having a 45,000-seat stadium in 1960 to having a 90,000-seat stadium in the early 1980s. But Georgia football is growing tremendously during this time period when Atlanta is becoming a pro sports town. But in the 70s, there was a guy named Pepper Rogers, who was the coach of Georgia Tech, and his weekly show was on during Falcons games sometimes, sometimes got nearly as good ratings as the Falcons game did. People watching Pepper Rogers talk about the highlights from the day before were drawing as many people as watching an NFL game sometimes. It certainly outpaced the Falcons' weekly highlight show. It oftentimes had 10 or 11 times as many viewers. It's, if you were to look at each of the, of the sports teams there, and, and you know, you talk about, I remember the Thrashers with Atlanta NHL mm-hmm. did not d- does not belong in certain cities. And I, I was doubting it surviving in Nashville and it nearly didn't, but you know, it has its region. Uh, but when you look at Atlanta, the Falcons, uh, would you say that Deion Sanders really brought the Falcons to the forefront? Well, I think he helped revive them. They had a period in the late, very late seventies when Eddie LeBaron was the general manager. 
they're successful in the playoffs a couple of times. Steve Markowski was probably yeah. the most prominent player on the team. Did a good club for a couple of years and had a bit of a resurgence. I think what what Deion Sanders did in particular was help help um, in many ways expand the Falcons fan base. Falcons fan base initially was almost just an extension of the Georgia Tech fan base. There'd be people talking about the same people who were going to cocktail parties on Saturdays before the Georgia Tech game, same kind of fancy north side set who followed Georgia Tech were the people who were buying Falcons and tickets. Eventually, the Falcons season ticket base became a little more suburban, a little more blue collar. but Still, it was a predominantly white fan base. In the 1980s, there starts to be a rapid expansion of Atlanta's black middle class. And I think with the, the, the correlation between that and then the rise in the early 90s of the Deion Sanders, Andre Rise, and Era Falcons, a team that becomes very strongly associated with hip-hop culture, I think the convergence of those things helped the Falcons expand their fan base considerably, particularly among African-American fans. And the Falcons ever since then have had a very, very strong, in the stands, African-American support. Previous to really the Georgia Dome, that was not the case so much. Uh, so I think the correspondence of those two things really played a major role in the reshaping of the franchise. And in many ways, Dion and Andre uh, Ryzen, I think, are, are, are the, I guess, the axis for the uh, the shifting of the franchise's fortunes. Even though that team is only good for a couple, you know, the Jerry Glanville era team is good for a couple of years, but fades quickly. In many ways, I think it helps to change the team's identity a little bit. And I think yeah. part of it was the uniforms, too, because yeah. in a cultural sense, those became like, a hip hop icon and, and became among the first jerseys that kids were out buying. And, you know, it is a way of presenting uh, an affiliation with that team. Oh, I love the red helmets. Oh, oh I love it too. When I, when I play uh, on Madden and I get to choose the, jer- the, the jerseys, I'm picking the red helmets, but of course you had M- MC hammer in on the sidelines, but for, for the, for the Braves, when they came down from Milwaukee, right. Um, uh, Hank Aaron really brought them in, and for what I what I remember about the Braves is just uh, uh, after Aaron's time, it it didn't seem like they had a very good team until the late '80s when they started bringing in people like John Smoltz and Tom Glavin and Steve Avery, uh, and and people like that. Yeah, well, they had a, they had a GM named John Schuerholz who really changes things up. One of the things that became very evident to me writing this book is the significance of team ownership and management to a franchise's success. I mean, Ted Turner buys the Braves in 1976. He'd had them on his TV station starting in 73. Essentially, he buys the Braves and also the uh, Hawks as a way to keep cheap programming on his TV stations. He's showing, you know, old episodes of, uh, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies and Andy of Mayberry and stuff. And he's got pro sports. That's basically his programming for what becomes TBS. Uh, and he, in many ways, is the guy who keeps pro sports in Atlanta, despite their lack of success in the 60s and 70s. The Braves almost moved. The Hawks almost moved. The Flames did move. Uh, the Falcons had the good fortune of having the, the Smith family, a guy named Rankin Smith, is the founder of the Atlanta Falcons. He may not have been a very good owner, but he was a very loyal. I mean, a good owner in terms of cultivating a successful franchise, but he was a very loyal owner team lost year after year after year he and his family took a lot of grief for it but he kept the team in town uh, through 2001 when they sell the team to arthur blank who brought in a much more professional operation i mean obviously they have the the falcons have had their ups and downs but i mean they're running the same way many other nfl teams that run at this point this very kind of corporate way the smiths kind of ran as a mom and pop operation and it kind of showed 
Uh, oftentimes relied on people who were like people in the insurance business with them to play in prominent roles in the football organization. I mean, their first GM was a guy named Frank Wall, who was just a uh, vice president in the insurance company who didn't really have any particular football expertise. That's, uh, but that's the way things were run uh, back then with especially good old boy system. Arthur Brink, Arthur Blank really did a great job in turning it around and making it what it is today. But if you were to give somebody, you know, what would draw people to this book is what I'm asking. What would draw people to this book? Well, if you're looking for an origin story for the modern sports business, why the dynamics between cities and stadiums and franchises and leagues are the way they are, this is essentially the story of how that world came into being, that it took cities willing to make these kind of investments to make this all possible or better or worse. I think in many ways it's for better. I think it would have been unfortunate if pro sports basically just existed in the Northeast and the Midwest. It wouldn't really reflect the transition of what happened in the country. Culturally, economically, socially, South and the West became much more significant in the country. And the expansion of pro sports into those regions was reflective of that. Um, and I, Atlanta is really who pushes the envelope and made it possible for this to happen. It probably would have at some point, but it, Atlanta is good at a lot of things. One of them has always been hyping themselves. Since the 1920s, Atlanta has been very good at, um, they had a program called Forward Atlanta, which was essentially a promotional campaign to lure investment from the rest of the country. And it was incredibly su successful, bringing in tens of millions of dollars a year in investment from Northern factories and branch plants of major corporations. And ever since then, Atlanta's basically used that model to hype itself into having pro sports, into having the Olympics, into having all kinds of other prominent institutions. And Atlanta used its perpetual kind of corporate uh, self-promotion machine to become big league. And many other, many other cities uh, followed suit and also got, uh, got big league teams of their own. So I think Atlanta, although things, it wasn't always a smooth ride, Atlanta was a, a pioneer in the transformation of pro sports and helped very much shape the landscape of what the uh, big leagues and the four major sports look like now. Now tell me you spent some time down in Atlanta doing some research, right? Yes, yeah, I spent months months down there. I spent, uh, this is a 10-year ten 10 year in the process make, uh, 10, 10, 10 years in the making book. Uh, it started out as my dissertation in graduate school. Uh, dissertations are dry and boring, so I had to convert it into being a book and telling a story. It took a while and uh, interviewed about 50 people, looked through many archives in Atlanta and uh, spent uh, many hundreds and possibly thousands of hours looking at old newspapers. So I'm leading to this. Did you get to go to the Coca-Cola Museum? Yeah, absolutely. Love the Coke Museum. I mean, I did I did all, all the touristy things. Right. You know, what, what did, you try, did you try Beverly? No, I didn't. Oh, Clayton, you are you're killing me. Well, I gotta, next time me. I got to go back down, I, I, I will be trying Beverly. Now, you've heard it, though. You've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, I've it's, heard it. Absolutely. Yes. It's absolutely awful, but it's hard to describe how nasty that drink is. It's a palate I, I've heard. Yes. It's a palate I, cleanser, but it's, yeah, it does just that. So... You have you have four major sports in Atlanta at one time. Of course, the Thrashers, uh, the NHL is not there now. Uh, yes. If you're talking, in your opinion, what what sport is? I wouldn't say the most important, but what sport really makes Atlanta Atlanta? I, I think three? it's football. I think to this day it's football. I mean, even as the Falcons are not the most popular franchise in the league or anything. 
Atlanta, in many ways, I would argue, is 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 as much a hub of football as any city. With the the with having the College Football Hall of Fame, with having having the Peach the Chick Fil A Peach Bowl having become such a big deal, with basically being where all the people from all the SEC schools, people who get corporate jobs, where they end up. I mean, even in the 1960s, the Atlanta Journal Journal and the Atlanta Constitution, each of the, which later merged, each paper had a beat writer for every single school in the SEC and every single school in the ACC during football season because they knew there were lots of people from all of those schools who had ended up with corporate jobs in Atlanta. So in many ways, it's very much the hub, the, the, the regional hub of the Southeast and also of the football enthusiasm of people in those different places. I mean, if you, if you, I mean, the, the, the draw regionally is, is, is quite remarkable for that city uh, in terms of football and certainly Friday nights uh, in metropolitan Atlanta, there's lots of great football being played every weekend, even as it was in the 1960s. I mean, the Braves, one thing the Braves that I was complaining about was come September, there'd be 10,000 people at seven or eight, nine, ten different high school football games in metropolitan Atlanta, and there'd be three or 4,000 people at the Braves game. It's hard to go uh, on Friday Night Lights here in the South. It's hard to beat that. Uh, we had 6,100 people last Thursday night at the Titan Stadium because they allowed the Waverly Central High School to play there. 6,100 people. Uh, it's just hard to beat that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. It's, it's, uh, yeah. It's, it's, and I think the, the pro sports teams all found that too. That, that was a lot more serious composition, competition than they realized. Just as the, the hockey realized that pro wrestling would be embarrassing them in terms of uh, attendance on your typical Friday night playing at an air-conditioned armory. Well, it's hard to beat a hill getting his comeuppance. It really is. It is hard. Absolutely. I've been to a well, WCW okay. before. It's it's great. Oh, yeah. I, I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. I never got to a WCW event. They didn't really come to the Northeast, but I've been to several WWE events and some independent wrestling and stuff, too. Yeah. I've, it, in terms of the storytelling, I always think of the world in terms of faces and heels and stuff, too. So it's very, very okay. helpful. Uh, oh, I, one of the best parts about it, uh, when when Ted Turner went up against the WWE or WWF at the time, uh, he brought in a whole new world of storytelling that made it even better. And, and, and you know, when you say that you're NWO for life, I get you. I feel you. Oh, I think that's right the greatest storyline in wrestling of all time. I mean, it was just, it was so shocking watching it live. I'm seeing Paul and Nash get there and then Hogan. And you know, it was just fantastic. <laughs> you too sweet. I, I did I was, the hand thing. I just, yeah, I did. Or were you Wolfpack or were you the uh, just the traditional NWO in terms of your WO, just traditional NWO. But I even go back further with them, the four horsemen. You know, we know. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. Love those guys. I mean, I listen to wrestling podcasts all the time and stuff. Arn, so Arn Anderson, you know, had you had Larry Zabisco and uh you had uh, Rick Flair and then Lex Luthor or Luther Luger was was part of the Four Horsemen at, at one point, but I, I forgot who the fourth one was. Oh, Blanchard um, was an original yes, guy. Yes, that's uh, it. Gary Wyndham was in it for a while. Yeah, I mean they. Oh, I love watching that. See, we can we can have a rest a wrestling podcast right now. We can talk about some. Past, oh, anytime that'd be great. Yeah, I could. Yeah. I see. Not only not only has Clayton got me into uh, a couple of books about uh, the uh, the the Seven Year War. 
and, and things like that. But now we're talking wrestling in a football podcast. It's that just what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about, folks. Well, there's a lot of wrestling in my book. I mean, there's probably a good 30, 40 wrestling pages. I mean, I, I, I made it I mean, very much a Clayton book. It's the things that interest me. I thought there's a fair amount of stock car racing in it. You know, that's, that's one thing about the South that you'll find that the Dukes of Hazard takes place an hour or two away from, you know, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So stock car racing coming from the, uh, from the bootlegging time is heavy, heavily influenced there. And of course the Atlanta motor speedway, uh, is a huge draw too. And I remember driving by that one day after a race and it was, uh, you had to basically, uh, wait hours just to get out. It's that heavy in that area. It's 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 neat. Well, yeah, I mean there there was uh there was a week the first time the first weekend in 1966 when the Braves were playing in town they had they had played exhibition games against the New York Yankees. They're playing Maris, they're playing Mantle, they're playing the classic Yankees kind of team, and they just get blown out of the water in attendance by the Atlanta 500 race, which drew over 100,000 people. And then the Masters that weekend, early April, it drew, I think, 250,000 people for the weekend. 25, 30,000 people went to the baseball games. Those were small gatherings compared to what was happening with the very different crowds at the Masters and at the Atlanta 500 in Hampton. You know that they're start, They're going to put turn signals now on NASCAR racers or race cars? Is that true? That's not true. I'm just messing with you. I was like, <laughs> like they really have. That. They really have adjusted. I mean, I to me, when they went to the whole uh, the next Hell Cup thing, I feel like that was the beginning of it being something very different than when I grew up perceiving it as. I I love looking at the old '80s model. Uh, I think they had a Pontiac car involved with that. They're boxy. They're just ugly but those are the real cars those are just amazing uh and i'm looking forward to reading your book buddy uh where can we get it well it's available pre-order now on amazon and barnes noble it comes out february 1st 2022 officially it'll be at bookstores and stuff it's being published by the university of nebraska press you can pre-order it now it'll be delivered to your house uh right around the beginning of uh, 2022 as a result uh, you can check me out on Twitter at Clayton Truder. I'm also on Facebook, and I'd be glad to be your uh, friend as well. And, uh, yeah, it's yeah, been fantastic. If, if you follow uh, the Football's Family podcast on Facebook, I believe I have shared a couple of your posts that you put. You've been putting up several good ones on lately, and I think I've been sharing it on there. So if you need to get a hold of Clayton through that, that's one way to do it. Also, I will put a link when I put this up a little bit later on today. I will put a link to your Twitter account on there as well. Fantastic. That'd, that'd, that'd be great. Buddy, thank you for coming on. Oh, what a pleasure. It's always such fun. We could we could do wrestling podcast, wrestling podcast on this football one if you want. All right. I gotta ask you. I gotta ask you. And this is this is this is where we end, folks. What is your this is not the best way to ask this, but who is your all-time favorite wrestler? Wrestler. I really love Ric Flair. I mean, I just, I, to okay. me, in many ways, he embodies the things that I just so fantastic awesome. about the sport. He is. He I mean, is awesome. I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm trying to think who else would have. I mean, I tend to, I like heel Ric Flair better, too. Uh, I mean, I just love that. To me, the promos are half this. I just love, you know, him. 
you know, wheeling, dealing, piss stealing, son of a gun, and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> well, I'll just go and watch those promos and stuff like that. To me, I I enjoy Ric Flair, but also um, I didn't like when Bret Hart went heel. I liked him as when the Hart Foundation, and I liked him when he before he went heel. Uh, but if I can have oh, those, he's two, such a classic babyface. Yeah. Oh, he's he's perfect. Uh, yeah. Those two, uh, the easy answer would be, you know, people say, well, Hulk Hogan's my all-time favorite. Hulk Hogan was not a wrestler. Hulk Hogan was a performer. If you want a wrestler. Yes, and a Bret great Hart. performer, but yeah, he's not a wrestler. Yeah. Uh, he, I think they looked at him and said, he doesn't know how to, to do any wrestling moves. Kurt Henning was a wrestler. Mr. Perfect. Oh, yeah, he was great. Yep. Uh, I never liked him, but looking back at his career, he was a wrestler. He knew what he was doing. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you with with Ric Flair. Not only is he all everybody knows when they say Ric Flair, they go woo. Everybody knows that. Well, I kind of like I've heard people be like, "Do you want pro wrestling to be characters, or do you want it to be a simulated fight?" And I don't want it to be a simulated fight. I like the presentation of it as trying to make it seem like it's a real thing. I, which is very much the kind of Southern wrestling mentality, which I, I definitely feel a lot closer to than the WWE, which is always a or WWF, which is always a lot more cartoonish. You know, guys like have a day job as a garbage man, but at night they, you know, you know they fight, you know, Adam Bomber, whoever kind of thing. Like the the the, the to me, the idea that it's like a person representing themselves, I like a lot better than the, you know, you know, the big boss man. He's, you know, he's the corrections officer in Cobb County, but at night he's, you know, going to take on Bam Bam Bigelow. Kind of thing. I don't really go for that as much. Remember him and Akeem? They were the oh, what were they called? The they were the, oh, uh, it was Akeem the African Dream, right? Yes, he, yeah, he was, he was previously one been man one man gang. gang. Yeah, he was a one man gang. Yeah. They they came together and then they went. But I was thinking of the two towers, but it was or the twin towers, but that was Hakeem and Andre the Giant. Uh, but yeah, well, that's, they call it because there was a team called Skyscrapers in WCW, and one of the guys was uh, Mark Calloway, who becomes the Undertaker. Yeah, because they were managed by Teddy Long, like in '89, '90. I vague recollections of this. Not a good team. He he was not the wrestler that y'all see today, or I think he retired. But I remember that. Um, he actually, I remember when he came on as the undertaker and I watched him fight, uh, Hogan. And I believe that he really came on in a Royal rumble and took Hogan out. Yep. And I was like, yeah, no, no. And then he, he wins the title. Brief. No, he went to this Tuesday in Texas. There was a thing like in nine, late 91 or something like that. Or maybe the survivors is like, he came in like, cause remember the manager was originally brother love. Yes. Yes, and then oh, Paul Bearer comes along eventually, um, and uh, he, yeah, he beats Hogan, and then Hogan takes the urn. He's like the first of a million guys to take the urn, and then like smashes, and there was like green stuff coming out of it or whatever. But that was that is before uh, you started getting into the weird stuff with the Ultimate Warrior, and I believe also him and Jake Roberts got made friends or something. It was. That whole stuff, I went back since since we've had nothing better to do than to stay at home because of COVID. I went back and watched yeah. a lot of those old school. And I remember Brother Love, um, that red face. Brother Love! Yeah. That yeah. creeped me out so much when I was a little kid. I just found that. So, like, I had to look away when like, I was like, what's, I didn't know if he got sunburned. I didn't really understand what was happening. 
he he basically it's a mockery of of my job is basically of course, what yeah. your love is. But I remember Paul Bear, Paul Bear, oh, something like that, holding the urn up and controlling the Undertaker. But I remember also one of my favorite parts about the Undertaker is when he became the biker Undertaker. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, like late late nineties. Like yeah. Uh, he had what was it? Was a limp biscuit that did his uh oh kid rock the American he's the American. Oh yeah, bad. yeah. Keep rolling, rolling. Oh yes, yes. Um uh, and I, we we got the WWE games on uh the Nintendo, this the the 64, I believe it was was, and we every one of them wanted to play as the Undertaker and ride the bike in. That was that's <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, Bret Hart was always great to play play those games to, you know, get people in the sharpshooter and all those holds and stuff like that, and they couldn't move around. That is the same type of, that's why my grades in college were not what they should have been. That in 007, GoldenEye. Well, that's a, oh, what a fantastic game. I haven't played that so long, man. It doesn't carry over well, bud. It doesn't carry over at <laughs> all. But Perfect Dark did. But anyway, let's, I will stop. See, this is, this is reminiscing. This is making my heart <laughs> feel good, but also making me realize I'm old. Y'all, thank you for listening to the Football's Family Podcast. And, and make sure that uh, when you get this, that you follow Mr. Clayton here on, on Twitter and get his book. Yeah, thank y'all. Thank you, Clayton. Thank you so much. What a pleasure as always, Jeremy. Hey, are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday, and Thursday, and Monday, and whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA, golf, cricket, esports, and of course, NFL football. And just to get the 2021 NFL season started right, Thrive Fantasy is holding its $100,000 guaranteed contest with a $20,000 first prize. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive, that's T-H-R-I-V-E, or enter promo code S-H-N when depositing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique 
unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.